Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's stellar panel, returning to the roundup, Lucy Caldwell, who's a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you. Great to see you. Also returning to the roundup is regular Susan Del Percio. Susan is a highly sought after crisis communications expert and political analyst at MSNBC. Welcome back, Susan. Great to be with you here in New York City. On this week's roundup, New York City's predictable spiral into total chaos as voters and now election officials try to determine the city's next Democratic candidate for mayor and the national demographic trends illuminated in the election. Why a judge tossed antitrust lawsuits against Facebook and where the push to regulate big tech is headed. Why the Supreme Court is allowing the CDC's eviction moratorium to stay in place, at least for now. Also, in our Politicology Plus segment, we'll look at South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem's decision to deploy the National Guard to the country's southern border and who is paying for it. You won't want to miss this, so you can subscribe to Politicology Plus right now by going to politicology.com plus or click the link in your show notes. But first, it's been one hell of a news week, and I want to acknowledge some breaking news happening right as we are recording this episode. The Manhattan DA and New York Attorney General have obtained indictments against the Trump Organization and its longtime chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. Weisselberg turned himself in early Thursday morning, although it's been reported he will plead not guilty. And CNN is reporting the charges alleged tax crimes, though the indictment itself will not be unsealed until after this episode is recorded. So we're certainly going to watch this closely, and we'll have more to say about it on an upcoming Politicology episode. Let's get started. On Tuesday night, New York City's Board of Elections released a preliminary vote count before removing the numbers from its website, citing a discrepancy, which we soon thereafter learned stemmed from staff failing to remove sample ballots that were used to test the ranked choice software earlier. This has only added to the growing confusion surrounding the outcome of the race, which is the first ever in the city to use ranked choice voting and For those of our listeners who are not familiar with what ranked choice voting is, uh, Susan, before I ask you this next question, maybe you can just give us a very brief uh, primer on exactly how this works. Basically, instead of a primary where you just choose one candidate out of maybe three or four, you now get to choose up to five in your preferred order. So you rank them. And you rank them. And then it's a runoff instantly until somebody gets at least 50%. In theory, in New York. In theory, in New York. Okay. So if you would please... Start at the top of this election. What is happening in New York City and how are the candidates responding? Okay, so where we are today is that the Board of Elections has said that they had fixed the error that occurred on Tuesday night and that they are now going to continue with opening their absentee ballots beginning on July 6th. The reason why you have to wait so long is by state law. So we shouldn't conflate the fact that There were problems with the ranked choice voting results and getting them with the fact that the process is designed to take forever because of state election law. So we wouldn't have the results no matter what, even if this was a primary, unless it was unless someone reached over 40 percent the old way, we'd still be dealing with this. So it doesn't all fall on ranked choice voting. And I have to say, 
although I'm not a fan of it, mm-hmm. I think it's getting a bad name mm-hmm. because of the way it's being administered. Yeah. The other thing I would highlight is last year, the New York City Board of Elections said, you know what? We got a pandemic, then a presidential, and this isn't the best year to do ranked choice voting. So when the New York City Board of Elections says, mm, not a good idea, we should probably listen to them. <laughs> just throwing it out there. Also, can you uh, just briefly speak to how elections are run in New York generally and why the state routinely has problems counting votes? Okay. Because this is not a new thing, <laughs> right? I mean, ranked choice voting, You're, I mean, I'm actually a fan of the reform. I think it's good for candidates to get at least mm-hmm. 50%. Uh, for a winner of an election to get 50%. We have lots of, you know, we call them spoiler candidates, spoiler parties in New York. Um, so I actually think this is a really constructive long-term reform for, for, for democracy. But this isn't the first time New York's had trouble counting ballots. So w- why is New York different in that way? Okay. And let me just highlight, yeah. you know, it wasn't in every municipal race. For some reason, they thought the office of district attorney was so important that they didn't want to risk it <laughs> to rank choice voting. <laughs> so I just like to highlight. So for all of the yeah. hype that it's it's so good and they were firmly behind it, for some reason, they left the judicial uh, That was aspect last year. Of it. Yeah. Right. So I just like, well, and yeah. the results coming in this year, they, right. which, by the way, the results for the uh, New York district attorney's race are still going on to your point, because of New York state election law, you have to wait to open up the ballots a certain amount of time. Then you can fight over the ballots, right. which I have done many, many times. And that means you have one representative from each campaign or multiple campaigns. And you literally look at the ballot. You look for stray marks. You look at intent. You look at the envelope to make sure it was filled out right. All of these things. But the other thing that is new this year, actually, and it started last year, is the primary date changed. New York primaries used to be in September. That's when people are used to going Mm. to vote. They changed it. Because of the pandemic? No. They changed it actually because of um, military ballots not having enough time. And there there was a lawsuit, hungry more, but the primaries had to be backdated. No one wanted to have a primary in July or August, mm-hmm. ergo June. Yeah. So it, that's also new to the process, just okay. so we know. Okay. And also the elected officials do it for when it's best for them. In this case, yeah. New York, it's Democratic state. They know when they're in the state legislature, this is the best time for them to get petition signatures and then have the primary. Got it. Okay. So going into the election, the major concern was that voters wouldn't understand this RCB system. But in actuality, it's the Board of Elections counting that is hampering the city right now. Is that accurate? I mean, even though even though ranked choice voting isn't really to blame here, do you think the chaos is going to undermine the broader effort to push ranked choice voting into other states? It could. And yet, I think depending on the results, especially when we find out after the fact that people actually really did do multiple candidates in their ranked choice because a lot of people thought maybe they just got confused. You know, they'll just do one and done. If they see the participation, I don't think it will hurt because again, the problems are not on the, the, the system. It's not the system's fault. And again, I'm not a fan of the system, but you've got to be clear about that. The problem is, is that ranked choice voting hand counts take forever. Mm And that's that could overshadow something because it's part of the nature of the ballot having to redistribute them yeah. and, and needing the space and the time. That being said, here's the good news. If it's happened in New York, 
it's been, you know, that's wartime <laughs> testing. So at least moving forward, they could say if New York worked out its bugs. Yeah. Oh, it looks like there there's a real potential there. The only thing that can undermine that is the reason the. Uh, need to rely on algorithms and software. Right. We already know how people think about our elections. Half the country, or yeah. 70% of Republicans, I should say, don't believe the results, believed it was rigged. This idea of undermining our elections yeah. is is out there. So I think the idea of using computer software and not doing a hand count and using the paper like we saw in the general election in yeah. 2020 that could potentially be an issue. Okay, so that's a good segue, Lucy. I'd love to hear how you think whether this, you know, this entire episode could be used by the people pushing lies about election security and, you know, do you think this shows that when there are issues, you don't need, for example, partisan audits or ballots counted in a cabin in Montana? Uh, uh, you know, this this particular error was noticed, uh, it was corrected within hours, and that's the way it's supposed to work, right? Yeah, look, I think our elections, more than many other areas of government, are kind of at an inflection point with kind of uh, not only technology and our ability to kind of really enact at a big scale new types of voting reforms, but also just in like our expectations about real time coverage. You know, in some mm-hmm. countries, actually, like in France, for instance, in elections, they don't release the results at all, right? And then everyone <laughs> knows the pre-appointed time and people go and sit down in, it's amazing. Have you ever watched one of these in France? It's incredible. The pre-appointed time and someone comes on screen and is like, and the winner is, and then they show like Macron's face, right? Yeah. Or whatever, right? But Americans, like we have put such a premium on I think transparency in the process, which is awesome, that we often also forget to kind of extend some grace. Susan knows so much more about the New York Board of Elections than I do. And my understanding is that their track record is not great. But I do really want to caution people against conflating, and Susan alluded to this, conflating an error by some bureaucrats with a system that I think actually ranked choice voting holds a lot of promise. Um, I think ranked choice voting is great because the alternative to ranked choice voting is political machinery, like political machinery that is like, okay, we, the sort of like party powers that be want to make sure that kind of like this candidate gets through. Right. And so we can't have too many candidates who look like that candidate in, you know, issue affinities or kind of platform because then their votes could get splintered and, and so, you know, for instance, in the New York race, like Eric Adams, who came out on top, you know, early on may not, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a conspiracy against Eric Adams. It meant yeah. that there were a lot of other candidates who, you know, had more overlap, right? Like yeah. Catherine Garcia and Andrew Yang campaigned together. Um, and, 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 you know, there are other kinds of implications here about what does this tell us about the sort of political fabric of of New Yorkers and maybe Americans at large on the Democratic side. But to see so much more attention paid to this primary, I think is a good thing. There was one other argument that's being waged against ranked choice voting in this New York episode, which is that some of Eric Adams' surrogates have come out and started to claim that ranked choice voting um, is is a really like conspiracy and a form of voter suppression against Black and Latino voters. There is just no evidence of that. Uh, there is no evidence that that's happening. 
there is a lot of evidence that there was a diverse slate of candidates and that mm -hmm. people cast their votes and exercise their ability to rank their choices. Yeah. And they turned out at historically high levels. So I hope that when the dust settles, we will see that this was a good, a good first try at using a system that I hope we see get implemented all over the country. Yes. And I just want to yeah, ask one, one quick thing is yeah. it's also important not to look at there's there's flaws in the integrity of the system. Right. People make mistakes. Yeah. Mistakes get caught. They and are corrected. fixed. And this is critical. It is not that the New York City Board of Elections is necessarily corrupt or trying to set the stage and, and mm -hmm. you know, rig mm -hmm. the system. Mm -hmm. There was someone who didn't do their job. Yeah. And I just I, I hate the idea of seeing this whole fiasco. Yeah. Um discredit the integrity of the and it system shouldn't, and, and we it shouldn't sh let and it. we shouldn't right. absolutely should not let it. Yeah. Okay. So with all of that as a, as a, as the backdrop, and I want to talk about these candidates for a moment, and I want you to sort of explain the types of campaigns that they ran Susan. Uh, but I want to use this as a backdrop to talk briefly about what David Leadhart wrote in the New York times on Tuesday. This piece was really good and what it says about the city's mayoral race uh, and about some uh, mis misconceptions about race and politics, particularly in the Democratic Party. So he uses data from Pew Research Center's uh, 2017 classification of voters into nine categories on the left-right axis, uh, which as a side note, I think is kind of problematic, but um, which he says hold an important lesson for Democrats and that show parallels that revealed themselves in the NYC mayoral race. So Solid liberals, and I put that in air quotes. That's that's what he that's what Pew categorizes as the most left leaning group identified uh, are disproportionately made up of white college graduates with above average incomes, and Black, Hispanic, and Asian American voters are to the right of white Democrats on many issues. And these voters of color, especially working class voters, are more skeptical of things like immigration and free trade. They're worried about crime and tend to be more religious than white Democrats as well. And he compares this dichotomy to how former police officer Eric Adams, Susan, who you're going to tell us a little bit more about, who ran a more conservative campaign, led much of the race in the four outer boroughs, while more progressive candidates like Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley have done well in upscale Manhattan neighborhoods. So generally, Leinhard claims that the national majority Democrats enjoy is not as liberal as many high profile Democrats and that they need to moderate to win elections. So Susan, uh, first take this, the New York piece of this and talk to us a little bit about the differences between some of these groups of democratic primary voters and the constituencies that these candidates attracted and why uh, you think Eric Adams is in the lead. Okay. Not to blow up what you just said, okay. <laughs> but it's really important to remember New York city primaries are tribal. So all of those statistics are are great and they and they play out and they and I can explain why they play out but it's important to know that for example there's a play for northeast queens it's not the borough of queens it's power centers and where mm. certain elected officials and this is where it's all about political bosses make no mistake about it are able to, to to deliver certain constituencies, deliver district leaders to do the work, all of those things. So it's, it depends where you can get in. So now Eric Adams, he's got Brooklyn. I mean, mm. he's Brooklyn Borough President. He's working that. It were and he had also gotten enough um, exposure in some other boroughs that it really he was able to expand on that. Now, absolutely, Democratic primary voters 
are interested in, in, in the big picture because they tend to be the ones who show up who are more to, the, to the, the left on the spectrum because that's who shows up in primaries virtually anywhere. But at the same time, Eric Adams brought something that at the right time, he was, I wouldn't argue that he was necessarily part of a trend. It just happened to be the right thing at the right time. The subway crime was through the roof slashing on subways and it wasn't on the subways as well there were but not as many incidents on the nice upper east side subways as there were in the boroughs outside of manhattan Mm. so you have a lot of territorial stuff going on manhattan has always traditionally gone to the nice proper candidate and Mm. it's democrat or republican because there are republican primaries and we won't discuss issues because they're really bad but um that's that's where they tend to go so it's not surprising that Maya Wiley, who was mostly known as an MSNBC political analyst or not political, legal analyst, started to build off of that reputation. She announced very early and it was amazing, really didn't catch on until when? Until the AOC mm. endorsed her. Mm. That really changed her focus. She wasn't able to catch on fire. Garcia had a strong union support which does spread out over a lot of boroughs, but she also came in as the manager. And a lot of people don't associate her with Bloomberg, but they associate the idea of needing a manager. Hmm. New York, the pandemic hit New Yorkers really, really hard. It's, it's, you can feel it on the street. We're here in Midtown Manhattan. It looks, a lot of other areas are coming back. Midtown East is, is still pretty empty. So people are still feeling very much so the impact of the pandemic. So this New York City primary, there were you know 13 candidates. You had a Ray McGuire, who was a Citibank official, who sh- in theory should have you know come on the stage and, and done really well, but he didn't have enough backing from, from communities that you mm. need. It's all about building alliances, which mm. goes to ranked choice voting, right. because a lot of times ranked choice voting maybe not in New York City because it was the first time we did it here, is about creating alliances and kind of playing the system a little bit. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's just what tends to happen when we look at other cities. Yeah. Okay. So, Lucy, the the lean hard piece to me seems to be another case of Twitter is not real life. And we've talked about this before on the show. I think we've seen pretty plainly, even with the nomination of Joe Biden, that the electorate is closer to the middle than prominent Democrats and activists tend to be. And at the same time, you need the passion and the enthusiasm of activists to win elections. So how should the Democratic Party walk this balance between moderate working class voters and more liberal white collar voters? And what did you what was your reaction to the, to the piece in general? Yeah, I think it's really tough. And we see it in places beyond New York. And we see it in places like for instance, we've talked a lot about Kirsten Cinema, right? She's uh, the first Democratic senator in Arizona in decades, right? And now her base is busy trying to wage a sort of future primary challenge against her in 2024 because they're really mad at her because she's mm-hmm. not liberal enough, mm-hmm. right? So you look at a state like a, a purple state and you think, okay, well, you're not going to get someone left of Houston cinema in, right? Joe Biden won Arizona by like 10,000 votes, right? So there are a lot of dynamics at play. One of the things that comes to mind for me is how much of that dynamic among Democrats, is it, is it 
is it so fragile that like it's actually sort of dependent on Republicans continued insanity, right? Like, are they actually kind of like eking by? Did they eke by in 2020 in spite of things like defund the police, right? In spite of some of the kind of the 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 wing of the Democratic Party that is not very reflective of how most Americans feel politically, you know, are are they avoiding their own reckoning because the Republican Party is just so egregious now and sort of everything they do borders on authoritarianism? I think that's something that we'll see in the next midterms, but there are signs that that's the case. I mean, AOC, her vote share between 2018 and 2020 went down, right? And to your to your theme of Twitter is not real life, the loudest voices in the room are not necessarily the most, for the most reflective of how the general population feels. And that is actually not to bring it back too much, but that is why I think yeah. reforms like ranked choice voting or nonpartisan primaries are really good because it does give people more room. And it's going to be critical for Democrats to go back to that piece, especially in in retaining retaining their kind of support from communities of color because the, the groups that they rely on as traditional constituencies are even less into mm. some of the f- very left-wing talking points than they're kind of, they, they might have otherwise thought. Okay, on Monday, a federal court threw out the Federal Trade Commission's antitrust complaint against Facebook, which would have potentially resulted in Facebook divesting uh, Instagram and WhatsApp. The filing from the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia read, quote, Although the court does not agree with all of Facebook's contentions here, it ultimately concurs that the agency's complaint is legally insufficient and must therefore be dismissed. It also says, quote, it is almost as if the agency expects the court to simply nod to the conventional wisdom that Facebook is a monopolist. So essentially, the suits were premised on the feeling that Facebook holds a monopoly. And I put feeling in air quotes. Uh but it failed to deliver on substance. Antitrust laws are very specific in the burdens of proof that must be overcome to show that a corporation has a monopoly over its market. This is uh, obviously a huge win for Facebook, um, but it also puts the ball back in Congress's court when it comes to regulating big tech. And perhaps this is you know, going to lead to a more substantive discussion about what regulation is actually needed and desired in this space. So Lucy, I want to start with you. Um, a lot of people from very different perspectives have been talking about the need to regulate big tech. And for many of us, this concern was there long before 2020. Um, but it was inflamed last year as we watched the company turn a blind eye to the kind of malicious disinformation campaigns that that exacerbated vaccine skepticism and allowed, again, foreign adversaries like Russia to interfere in our elections, which we've talked about uh, on, on the show quite a bit. So a lot of this stems from unhappiness with who or what social media companies allow on their platforms, um, but also debates about privacy and data rights are all wrapped up in this too. So can you set the stage for us on where we are in the debate over how to regulate tech companies, um, who's in what corner, and what what actually needs regulation? Yeah, so I think... 
no one will be surprised to learn. I actually thought this was a really good decision. Um, mm. <laughs> I'm really glad about this decision. And I think that... I, okay, I'm, that I'm surprised by that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> Part of why I think it's a good decision, and you really hit the nail on the head with um, in, in talking about kind of sort of like the, the broader context in which this is happening. You know, you know, the question of whether Facebook is monopolistic, and, and I don't think it is, is distinct from whether, or, or rather whether Facebook is sort of like abusing a monopolistic power, right, in the market, is distinct from the questions that plagued our last election that have plagued us during the pandemic, which to me have much more to do with how to regulate Facebook and any social network when it comes to their role in censoring disinformation, fake information, fake fake users, right? And that relates to me a lot more to the ongoing conversation about Section 230, um, what kinds of protections we grant to tech companies so that they do not become liable for other people's speech. And so I, I think that that's where the ball game is. Now, I think that both parties are really kind of trying to bottle up the kind of populist uh, energy that exists now around tech on both sides. And some of the loudest voices sort of after this decision came down were people like Josh Hawley and Ken Buck. And, you know, th this is a backdrop of things like we talked a few weeks ago about DeSantis and his attempt to censor social media companies. There was another decision on that this week, but but that can't stand. But but it is not it's not traditional players, right? And the judge in this case who who came, brought this decision forward uh, is an Obama appointed judge. And the FTC's original decision to bring this suit last year, along with more than forty states, um, was primarily led by Democrats and a Trump-appointed Republican on the FTC and not two other Republicans. So it's really a case of like strange bedfellows. And I think this issue more than some others really reflects really just what a massive change we're undergoing as we try. And I think the judge got to this as we sort of try to figure out what he would call sort of how to handling how to handle an, an unusual, non-intuitive product market, right? Mm. That makes a lot of sense. This is really new ground. Yeah. Susan, I wonder what you think this says about, I mean, this does put the ball back in Congress's court, right? And, and this is what, this is, I think this is why I'm fine. Yeah, Lucy, I take your point about maybe this being the right decision because it, the, the two issues are disparate, whether Facebook is a monopoly and whether they're abusing a monopolistic power and whether we actually have a different need to regulate them for different reasons. But Susan, if this is back in Congress's court, then it's, it's doomed, right? I mean, it's, it's going to go no, Okay, fine. There's there may be bipartisan support, but are they are they going to get anything done? They don't understand it. First they, of they, all, exactly. <laughs> this was a very not, not only are they not only are they not doing their job, they also don't understand it. And that's why the lawsuit was brought on because they know that people in Congress are still using their Blackberries. Hmm. I mean, that's that's it. Like they still ask for their Rolodex and for the millennials <laughs> listening to this podcast, a Blackberry <laughs> and Rolodex was actually a thing, a hard thing with cards and you rolled it around to get numbers. But it was a lazy lawsuit because they couldn't prove 60 percent of shares. The air quotes were basically done by the judges. They were saying, like, where's that 60 percent? 
government's like, I don't know. I, I, that's what I heard. You know, my uncle down the street told me the yeah. 60%. It was that made up. Mm-hmm. And, and here's the, it is, it is a really complicated problem, which Lucy referred to. And it's very scary because the chances of it being resolved, Ron, like you just said, are very unlikely because Congress has to act on it. It is strange bedfellows. But the bigger problem is no one in the bed knows what they're talking about. Right. Yeah. They don't they can't. It's not like we discussed a few weeks ago. Oh, bipartisanship on China. Mm. Well, you know, sometimes it happens. It wasn't really bipartisanship. It was they just all it was kind of of accidental. Yeah. (laughs) And and here they're coming together from different from different places looking for a conclusion that they think should be there because they don't like the control, the influence Mm -hmm. that Facebook has as a medium. And that's really important when we start looking at why people are influenced by it. Now, Lucy has a much better understanding of this than I do and, and, and can talk about the way it affects us as a society. I'll look at it through a political lens and say, these politicians are scared because they haven't a clue. And they just know that if it goes against them, it's bad. So if they can't be on Facebook, maybe they can't raise money. Or, you know, if you could start, if you start creating these things that you hold certain people responsible, but not others, it's, it, they don't grasp it. And it's also really hard to define it. Yeah. So that also says to your point, can it get done? No, because I don't think they can agree on the terms. They can't even agree that Joe yeah. Biden's pro- yeah, yeah. duly elected. Yeah. How are they possibly going to come to terms on what is acceptable influence? Yeah. Go ahead, Lucy. Part of why I think that this decision makes a lot of sense, and and Susan alluded to this. I mean, the the judge said we're, we just lack facts here, right? So there were there were two kind of overarching claims. One was this idea that, as you said, Facebook's acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp, you know, made it a monopoly, right? And the judge said, well, in addition to the fact that they waited a long time to bring this case, the judge said, you know, monopoly power has a very specific definition under federal law, right? It's about your power to raise prices or exclude competition in a defined market. That would be things like, you know, our utilities, right? Like our cell phones, right? You could see um, Verizon facing something like this, right? That doesn't necessarily extend in the same way to Facebook, right? Uh, What it is so undefined, right? And, And also when you think about Facebook, you have to think about um, who are Facebook's customers, right? Mm-hmm. You have to distinguish between Facebook's customers and users. Yeah. Facebook's customers are advertisers, right? Yeah. Those are the people who transact with Facebook. We Facebook users don't pay money to Facebook. We're, we're just, the product. We're, we're the product, yeah. right? If you're not and paying so, money, you're the product. Right. And so, you know, is there evidence to suggest that there's nowhere else to advertise, right? It is this, I think that's what he meant by this is so non-intuitive, right? And and then and then a lot of stuff around how Facebook is or is not snuffing out competition. And and they're just there was not a strong case to be made. And you know the the reason that I am I feel so strongly about these things is that I always think that on the whole, the current state of things, even in the face of disinformation, even around fears of 
foreign interference in our elections. All of these things are things we need to address and we need to deal with what the role of social media platforms and other players are in it and what their responsibilities should be. But I am always, always very, very steadfast in believing that actually where we are now from where we were 10 years ago Mm. is so much better for democracy. We're in Mm. a much better place in terms of people being matched up to causes they care about, Um, you know, sort of like no name candidates popping up overnight and having huge followings. And I just will always be an optimist about the role of technology because I think it is a a net benefit for society. (laughs) Okay. So, so let me, you, you, there's two things you, you touched on there that I think are, are really important issues. And one of them is the fact that advertising on the internet is essentially a duopoly. It's Facebook and Google. That's it. Those are your two, those are your two options if you want to reach people. So there's that piece, Lucy, but the one that I'm acutely interested in is the growth of extremism in our politics. And I think you can trace that back to social media. Granted, yes, Social media has connected people to causes they care about, and it has been a boon for democracy, uh, like writ large. But, but especially on Facebook, um, we've seen a lot of extremism grow and 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 proliferate there. And I wonder if you think that's a, spa- a Facebook specific problem or just a people on the internet problem. And and we're not going to solve this problem today. But w- what direction would you point us in? Um, I think that it is both a people on the internet problem and a people on Facebook problem. Some of that may be because of the kinds of the demographics of people on Facebook. Um, Older, I I mean, sort of the same kinds of people who've been susceptible to some of the extreme disinformation that's permeated the Republican Party. There just happens to be a lot of demographic overlap. Um, There's also been some really interesting work done uh, that has come out in, I don't think in this case, but um, some other ongoing litigation with Facebook that shows that Facebook, and this was done by looking at um, statistics that Facebook was providing users, advertisers in the ad platform to make decisions about how to target their ads, where Facebook was returning numbers of how many people you could reach. Let's say you're like, I'm a toothpaste company um, aimed at like women, and I want to sell, maybe we'll use a better example. I'm a, I'm, sh- I'm a shaving cream aimed at women, and I want to sell, I want to sell to like women between like 15 and 35 who are American women. And the ad manager was like returning like, you know, like three X the number of times of just like American women in that demographic who exist, right? Like it's just like mathematically impossible that it would be that many people. Um, And there were, there were all these internal documents that came out from Facebook. There's a nonprofit in DC that's doing a lot of great work on this, where it was just obvious that internally there's an awareness that they have kind of fake user problem that goes so far and beyond what any company would expect. I mean, on a massive, massive scale. And so that is a problem that has to be addressed. Right. And, and I don't, I don't sort of doubt that for a minute, that that's a very important issue, but that again, to me is a separate issue. It is distinct from whether or not Facebook's acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp create Kind yeah, of like okay. unviable monopoly. Fair. Susan, last words? Well, just one thought is that when we talk about extremism, to me, yes, there's a, there's definitely a, an issue there and how people kind of find it out and spread it out. And their algorithms encourage you to more and more extreme content. Yes. Like, yeah. But at the same time, it's the people who know how to capitalize on that. 
mm-hmm. and feed on it that also perpetuate the problem, not just social media. So if you know, if you're Donald Trump's, if you were Donald Trump or some other Josh Hawley and you want to find those people, you want to harness them, right? Be, you're searching for that and you're trying to lead Amplify them. Amplify it. And you're amplifying it. So you're taking it with you. And I think we have to look about how our, how leaders try and collect that information and what they do with it because they are equal, not maybe not equally, but they're certainly guilty as well. And what's uniquely scary is that they're not necessarily people, as you say, who are voters in in the home district or home state of a of a member of Congress, right? And so, you know, even if you think, okay, well, the answer is to criminalize troll style disinformation behavior on Facebook. Well, what if they're in Kazakhstan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. or Russia. Late last week, the Biden administration announced a final extension of the CDC's ban on evictions, which would have ended yesterday, and the extension goes until the end of July. So challengers to the ban, including the Alabama Association of Realtors and other groups, claimed that the CDC exceeded its authority in enacting the ban, and they shifted the, quote, pandemic's financial burdens from the nation's 30 to 40 million renters to its 10 to 11 million landlords, resulting in over $13 billion in unpaid rent per month. And then they also claimed that the moratorium had become an instrument of economic policy rather than of disease control. And so now the Supreme Court has declined to take up an emergency application from the challengers, uh, which essentially leaves the ban in place until it expires uh, July 31st. And in a surprise turn, the court was split 5-4 on this decision with Justice Kavanaugh joining Roberts and the liberals. So there was no written decision, which is normal for a response uh, to an emergency repeal. Uh, But Kavanaugh did offer a brief concurring opinion that raised some eyebrows in conservative circles. And essentially, uh, he conceded that he doesn't believe the CDC was acting within its statutory authority. But because the order expires in a month and the extra time is necessary to distribute rental assistance funds, he voted to deny the application. And then the conservative magazine, National Review, blasted what they characterized as Kavanaugh's craven nod to the lawless eviction moratorium. So um, uh, I think we all agree, maybe we all agree, evicting people in the heart of a pandemic would have been a very bad thing. Um, But Lucy, formerly of the Goldwater Institute, I'm wondering how you're thinking about this uh, uh, in general from a policy perspective, but also the question of, um, you know, what authority the CDC has to take this action. Yeah, this is really like a topic to nerd out on because, yes, I think we all agree. We don't want to evict people in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of an economic downturn associated with with a pandemic. And it was also these these eviction moratoriums began last March of 2020, right? So things looked very, very different. You can also understand completely how an eviction could very, very easily, and, and this was a big piece of it, prov- you know, promote the spread of COVID-19, right? Because where does a person go? Mixing households. I mean, it's we, we're not so far away from it, but I mean, just nas- a few months yeah. ago, we were, we were thinking about our bubbles, right? Like not, you know, so yeah. obvious public health con- public health considerations, and and that's why it I guess it has so happened that it was the Center for Disease Control that was that was issuing these moratoriums. I think that hits a little different 
now, right? Um, and and that the the kind of the mechanics around those moratoriums, the, the idea is that the federal government is deriving its power basically to regulate, make rules about what can happen or not happen in a rental transaction, in other words, between a tenant and their landlord, and that they have that power under the Commerce Clause, right? Which is actually a congressional um, sort of power, right? And so, and so, and the CDC is an executive agency, right? That gets some of its power from Congress, but there are really interesting legal questions. And, and you can see how, even though in theory, of course, no one wants to see people get evicted during a pandemic, but to put my old Goldwater hat on, you can also see how this could create a precedent that might result in federal agencies under future administrations putting forth orders that we might not like. So it was an odd decision, I thought, from Kavanaugh a little bit because it's, it was kind of like, well, it's ending in July, at the end of July, so it's bad. The CDC has overstepped, but you know, it'll be over soon, which just is so strange. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a really perilous issue. Still, you have, you know, 6 million American families. That's a lot who desperately need relief. And the way that we're allocating the relief is coming from in the form of like $50 billion in aid from the last two federal stimuluses, but they're all being they're all being, this is federalism in action. Mm. They're being distributed through 400 state and local programs and states are implementing them at very different rates. A state like Texas has actually already implemented almost 40% of their funds. In other words, to make landlords whole. Some of these are mom and pop landlords, but other states have, have distributed less than 4%, right? And so it's a dicey situation, but it definitely raises uh, I think mechanical questions about what we want federal agencies mm. to do and not do. So, Susan, my political question here is: if we are really done kicking the can down the road, and the moratorium is going to expire at the end of July, how is all this going to play out? Uh, and, and, like as evictions resume, how is that going to play out politically? Hmm, that's a great question. First, I just want to get off my chest, Kavanaugh. Okay. Yeah. Really, really ticked me off because a month. <laughs> okay. Because a month to these landlords, yeah, could be the difference of foreclosure or not. Okay. Yeah. There and by is, the way, we should be clear for our listeners when we talk about landlords. Lucy mentioned these are oh, these I, are. I'm, I'm yeah, getting okay. there. So okay, go ahead. I I used to work with an association yeah. of over ten thousand landlords. None of them had. An, an apartment building that had more than 10 units. Virtually all of them were also the super. They lived in the building. It was what they, it was their job. It was everything. These are not landlords. Yes, there are big landlords out there who have, you know, units of uh, yeah, 500 yeah. here, 200 there. The majority of, of landlords that we're talking about are month to month trying to make it. And guess because of what they do, who the, the people who rent their apartments are, people who happen to also be living mm. month to month. And I understand the, the, the issue and why it was important to definitely, you know, not to create yeah. a moratorium, um, to create a moratorium um, last year. But as states reopened, the CDC, I think it was a it was a very pass the buck thing to do it through the CDC. Mm. We've passed so many different things and is an emergency in legislation. The CDC was another cop out. It was it was easy and and 
it was wrong, in my opinion. Congress shirking their duty. Yeah. yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. No, but and the states, I mean, the states also implemented other stricter requirements. So it's and, and a lot of people did take advantage of it. OK, fine. That so be it. We have to take care of the public good, which I am all for. But the idea of saying, oh, it's just another month. Like, I mm. disagree with that. That to me is just that was basically his reasoning. That was his reasoning. It's, it's going to come. It's another month. Well, guess what? Those landlords may not be able to sit, survive another month, which means those tenants will end up being in trouble come the following month. Because if the landlord can't upkeep the building, you can, maybe he can't kick you out, but you're not getting heat. You're yeah. not getting your air conditioning. You know, there, there were issues at hand. But the, the bigger problem as far as a, as a political issue, yeah. which is a really, really good question, um, is interesting because it's one of those things I don't think the public knows who to put the blame on. So if you want to look at it as a political issue, who would it hurt? Would Does blame? it hurt the, your mayor, your governor, your congressman, your elect, state elected official, state senator? It's a very- You it's blame a very, the CDC? Yeah, right. You, you probably <laughs> don't blame the right. CDC. Yeah. But you, know, you, you blame the- how do you, Where does the blame fall? And that's a very interesting thing. And just to bring it back to New York City just yeah, for a second, sure. one thing that Eric Adams did- was he cr- said he will create a fund for landlords to get the money directly from the city, ret- you know, returned to them that they are owed mm. and that they should be taken care of first. So I think politically it'll fall more on lo- localities um, how to administer the funds or at least speak up for for both sides. But it it is an interesting question because it's literally one of those things that there's no one directly to blame. Okay, now that we're up to speed on at least three of the biggest stories this week, <laughs> what, what are you both watching? Uh, Lucy, why don't you go first and then Susan? Well, we've talked a little bit on the podcast before about NCAA sports, inequity in sports. We talked about it a few months ago during March Madness. And I want to flag another story that's kind of related, which is that this week, the NCAA passed new rules, and I believe they're temporary, but new rules that um, made it possible for student athletes to make money as athletes. This has huge implications. Uh, Traditionally, the NCAA has had rules around whether or not students can um, make money from things like endorsement deals, other types of of partnerships, um, and and that previously would have uh, basically put an end to their amateur status, right? So this is a huge deal for student athletes because notoriously being a student athlete at the D1 level, say, can be kind of thankless, right? Schools are still prohibited from paying students to be athletes. um, But this is a huge boon for student athletes who um, have really kind of wanted to have an ability to make money during a time that is not that glamorous. So kind of interesting, could have big implications. Congress will probably get involved in this as well. But as we always say, who knows what the hell they'll accomplish. Susan, what do you got for us? I am watching Wisconsin for a whole host of reasons, <laughs> not only because Ron Johnson is up for re-election, and I am definitely convinced he was dropped on his head, but because there's a lot of things going on in, in the state on, on the local political level on both sides of the aisle. 
So last week, the Republicans had their convention and Donald Trump writes a letter saying like, you're not working hard enough to overturn the election. And they're like, Mr. President, <laughs> like, we're writing all these laws. The governor's going to veto them. But we're, we're there. We've written every piece of legislation. We're, we're hiring investigators. We're, we're doing everything but like looking for bamboo. Like we're, we're on it. And he just kept going on and on. And now you have Republicans saying he's killing us. Like we're, we have, a U.S. Senate seat up and the governor's seat up. And he's wanting us to keep fighting 2020 like we got other things to do. On the other side of the aisle, you've got Governor Tony Evers saying, I'm going to make the right to vote a campaign issue. And I find that really fascinating because, as I mentioned, he, there's all of these voter restriction laws coming up in Wisconsin they do not have a veto override in the legislature. So his so Evers veto will stand. But he wants to take it a next step further as he's running for reelection. And part of me wonders what's happening there. And they had basically said, like, uh, uh, do, doing a campaign to ensure that Evers would keep his be able to keep his veto power, meaning don't elect too many more Republicans. But is that something that's going to seep out into the um, political debate. And if it does, I'm not sure that's a good thing. Like part of me loves the idea like, oh, isn't it great public policy? But then at the same time, I'm wondering politically, Republicans are going to start hitting you on the economy. They're going to hit you on crime. They're Mm. doing all this and you're coming Mm. back with, but I vetoed this package. I'm not sure that that's the right strategy. And I'm wondering if this is going to be a little bit of a test case or not. But in general, Wisconsin is just, I think, forget Florida, Florida, Florida. Yeah. It's Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. That's so interesting because my my initial reflex to that would be, yes, it would be a great thing if Democrats made that an issue because I think it would be it would hugely mobilize turnout. Um, but I think you're right. It might leave themselves unguarded on a lot of other issues that that moderate voters care about. So uh, that's a good that's a good look ahead. I like that. I wanted to mention uh, briefly just that, you know, we didn't get to this today. We will talk about this uh, at length coming up, but the House voted 222 to 190 to form a committee to investigate the January 6th insurrection. I'm sure our listeners have seen this by now. There were only two Republicans that supported it, uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, um, predictably. This is after the Senate blocked the bill that would have made a bipartisan committee. Um, so technically, this is bipartisan, but it's only in the House and it was only supported by two Republicans. And it's been reported that McCarthy has threatened to strip any Republican member of their committee assignments if they accept an offer from Pelosi to serve on this commission. And uh, and uh, Pelosi has named Cheney to the commission. So we'll talk about this a lot more coming up. Um, before I let you go, where can people find you on the Internet, Susan? At Del Percio S on Twitter. And Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you're not already in our Plus community, you can unlock today's bonus segment and much more, including our tapped episodes, Thought Labs, Enemies of Democracy at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. And you can help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.